Good morning. I'm Lauren Anders Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoot possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop had a decent filter, single origin coffee, and always using the hashtag today's office. Now I am picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews, and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind the scenes look at what it is like to travel, produce, film, direct, record, alone, as my own correspondent. I grew up in the United States, where my family saw a six-hour car drive to our house in Maine for a weekend as a normal weekend. My parents had one of those box tube TVs. Um, it was small and it could be strapped to a milk crate that my brother and I could watch movies all the way. Although we'd usually only watch one movie over and over and over until we arrived and then continued to watch even on arrival. Our usual choice was Hook with Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman. That was pretty standard for us. It's the story of what Peter Pan was like when he eventually grew up. I'd like to think those car journeys were preparing me for being able to handle lengths and distances when I grew up. But I'd have to do about two round trips twice and a lot of hook watches to have prepared me for the time it took me to get from Mozambique to South Sudan in 2019. For some perspective, the two countries are just under 1,800 miles apart in distance. The equivalent to New York City to Little Rock, Arkansas. It took me 29 hours to get from Beira to Maputo in Mozambique, to Johannesburg in South Africa, to Kigali in Rwanda, to Juba in South Sudan. I was slightly broken by the time I arrived in Juba and more than a bit disoriented. When I had visited the year prior, I walked off the plane and into a large humanitarian tent as our arrivals hall. This time, there was a small but shiny arrivals hall that I was grateful for, considering how much time I was about to end up spending in it. Upon arrival, I was supposed to be met by a media officer to inspect my equipment. I opened my bag for inspection, anticipating they'd want to take out all of the items and to compare it to my equipment list. And the border control actually had no interest in it since they realized they had no idea what I would be showing them and grew bored at the first filter I showed. <laughs> But they also didn't want to be obligated to appear to be working. So eventually they just cleared me and to their benefit and not mine, because my driver was still not there and neither was the media officer. I ended up waiting for about another 45 minutes until my smiling driver showed up as if he was arriving right on time. The media officer who was with him was sorely disappointed. He had interrupted his day only to see I had already cleared customs. I was dropped off at a hotel in Juba where nothing had changed since I was there last year. A lone security guard creaks open the barbed wire gate to let our car in without the usual mirror sweep under the vehicle, looking for explosives. I had, after all, arrived at an auspicious time to South Sudan, 
South Sudan is the world's youngest country, gaining its independence from Sudan to the north in 2011. Salva Kiir was elected president of the region of Southern Sudan in 2010 and inherited the presidency upon the country's independence in 2011. The constitution authorized a four-year presidential term and a two-year limit. There have been no presidential elections in South Sudan since 2010. Still, Salva Kiir remains in power. Meanwhile, Rick Mashar was appointed vice president in 2011 as part of a transitional unity government, but was dismissed with the rest of Kiir's cabinet later that year. Subsequent power-sharing agreements between Kiir and Mashar in 2013, 2015, 2016, and 2018 have not held. Since the war began, Mashar has spent a total of about four months in South Sudan, just a little bit more than me. The Sunday I landed was in the middle of a ceasefire, which would normally bring anyone relief, but ceasefires in South Sudan have been immediately followed by sharp spikes in violence. So instead of laying down arms, all sides were preparing for whatever the ceasefire would bring, including the UN peacekeepers. South Sudan has had a steady level of fighting between two ethnic groups mainly, the Dinkas and the Noors, averaging over 800 violent events per year since 2013 and has persisted since the start of the war resulting in an estimated 400,000 deaths. 800 events a year averages to 66 per month, which is more than two per day. I was just hoping to avoid becoming a part of that statistic in my barbed wire walled hotel until I realized I was departing that safe haven and getting back on another plane to be dropped. Where exactly? This time, I was dropped off at the humanitarian tent entrance to the airport that still existed for in-country transfers. As I glared up at the unhelpful check-in clerk, I began the painful process of dismantling my military-style packing job inside my luggage. I monopolized the space at the front of departures area in the tent to weigh the changes to my luggage. With each change, my equipment alone weighed nearly 23 kilograms of the combined baggage allowance. And in a reality show style, I had to quickly choose what basic necessities I took with me. I had no idea additional luggage allowance was required to be booked two days in advance, but how was I supposed to know? That would have been possible spending 29 hours in the air only a few days prior. So what came with me? Toothbrush, toothpaste, change of clothes, raincoat, coffee cup, definitely the coffee cup, and the mosquito net. Make the cut before I send my mostly empty suitcase back to the office for storage. But not before my smiling driver shoves a SIM card into my hand and promises to top up the credit on it and says goodbye. I sat in my sweat. It was too hot to be angry or anxious that I felt I was going blind, totally unprepared as to where I was going or the people I was about to encounter. I literally felt I knew nothing other than I was hungry and sweaty. I had to pay attention to the people shouting at the front of the tent, the locations, and more importantly, remember the name of the place I was going to, since it could be quite likely I could get on the wrong flight. There are no main roads in South Sudan to connect the country, 
In about 20 minutes time in the air, we were landing on a dirt runway. This arrivals area had no tent, just a tree. The door to the plane was also the stairs. How convenient, and it contained four steps. Both myself and my 23 kilograms of equipment walked the four steps down off the small plane into, wait, what, where? And who am I meeting? I look at my phone and despite two hours passing since I left my smiling driver, my SIM card still had not been activated. I'd been dropped in the middle of nowhere in South Sudan with no way of contacting anyone. It was so hot, no one could distinguish the difference between my sweat and my tears. Eventually, a woman who looked pretty trustworthy comes forward to the tree where I was, where I was destined to wait until the next plane came because I had no idea who was coming to get me. And she introduced herself as Betty and she welcomed me to Torit. There's no high walls of barbed wire in the place where I'm staying in Torit, but I'm so grateful. The credit on my phone finally kicks in with a nudge from Betty to my smiling driver back in Juba. And I have data and feel a little less out on my own. Betty and some confidently and capable smiling women take me to a clinic where they say they have survivors waiting to meet me. The little briefing I did get before this trip had instructed me to film maternal health services on my first stop. So I was slightly confused at the use of the term survivor birth. I went along with it and met two older mothers who seemed a bit older to have traumatic childbirth stories, but continued with the introductions, grateful to have someone to be filming with, and an amazing team of women that would help me. I then asked about their patient experience and was politely corrected by my interpreter, Grace, that they do not refer to women there as patients, but as survivors. And I very quickly realized she's referring to them being survivors of gender-based violence. And I have to begin catching up to the situation I have been dropped in to begin creating relevant questions for Grace to translate to ask these brave women who came forward to share their experiences. You find that girls are vulnerable, they get married very early, and they cannot help themselves. They have to go to the garden and cut uh, firewood to sell, they move with the flies on their backs, they cannot take care of their children, and they find that she... okay? Maybe this might have lost somebody. She seems really upset. She must have lost somebody. She went where? She must have lost somebody, somebody might have died. So that is Sorry. So, yeah, it's okay. so, so, so she's saying, actually, she really doesn't want this. It is uncomfortable because she doesn't want these young children of today to suffer like them who have not gone to school. What she wants, as well as pray for her child, she wanted her daughter to study and have her pain and have a decent marriage so that she will come and help her in the future. Not again the daughter to go back and suffer the way she suffered, cutting firewood, selling firewood and charcoal to make sure that they're beaten. And does she feel that preventing the early marriage of her daughter is um, is keeping her safe from sexual assault then? The early marriage? 
by preventing her daughter's early marriage. Mm -hmm. Is she trying to keep her safe from sexual assault? Okay, so say, um, she, she will never give up on her daughter. And she's very sure if the government stands with her, her daughter will always be safe from sexual assault and abuse. And she promised to stand for her daughter, for the rights of her daughter, until they really face the justice before the law. Whether they're going tomorrow to stand they? before the law to the High Court, they're summoned tomorrow. So what time tomorrow? At 9. At, at nine? 8, I mean at 8. At 8? Yeah. So she's going to at 8 to the High Court. With the lawyer from yeah. here? Yeah. And how has the lawyer here helped her? Yeah, that's Or right. did she talk about it already? Yeah. Yeah, that's why she's here. She came particularly to be briefed that tomorrow she's going there and she's so, she's so strong, she should know her rights, she should not change any statement so that she'll be able to win the, the case. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So now she's saying she'll continue to stand firm. She doesn't want any bribe from anybody, from the relatives of that boy, because she knows the right of her child and she wants her child to study. And her advice out there to other women is that they should not sell their children, their girls, to men because of money. Mm -hmm. Because this money is going to be given to you today and it will not help you in future. And when you educate your girl, you'll get more in future to help you and even help the whole family. These girls are very important to the, to the nation and to the families. I was in awe of this mother who spoke up not only for her daughter, but for the justice of her daughter as well. She was in the process of seeking legal action against the person who wanted to marry her daughter in a place where the lack of food usually results in child marriage. It's complicated to say the least. I may have been pretty disoriented about where I was in the country, but this mother's moral compass made me realize I was exactly where I needed to be. Gender-based violence is not a unique issue to South Sudan. One in three women have experienced gender-based violence in the entire world. It is also the theme addressed in the opening night of the Global Health Film Festival. If you're in the UK, you can watch the premiere of Dying to Divorce, which focuses on intimate partner violence and femicide in Turkey. This powerful film follows three extraordinary women taking a stand against Turkey's gender violence crisis and setting an inspiring example for us all. It's a definite must-see in this year's program, and I'm so excited the festival is getting near. Find out more at globalhealthfilm.org. Get your passes, and if you buy a pass for the whole festival, you'll also be able to see the premiere of my latest documentary, Forged, on Syrian identity. And that's it for this month. Back next month with more from my own correspondent. Do join me. <laughs>